Namaskaram. Good evening, everybody. So today we have the wonderful good fortune to be with Swami Medanandaji. So I won't spend any time with introductions. We can dispense with those. I think the course of the conversation itself will be adequate introduction for Swami Medanandaji. You will see the depth of his intellect and the quality of his work in the conversation itself. So let the conversation speak for itself. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to each of us take about 15 minutes. We'll start with Swami Medanandaji and describe two philosophies. So Swami Medanandaji will sketch out... Um, Vignana Vedanta, and you'll, of course, many of you have picked up this book, Infinite, uh, you know, Swami Medanandaji will tell it, Infinite Paths to Infinite Reality. And in it, Swami Medanandaji lists a few principles of Vignana Vedanta, particularly earlier on in the book. And so we're going to hear about this articulation of Vedanta, which is exemplified by the life and teachings of Sri Ramakrishna. Then I'll take 15 minutes to sketch out the vast and oceanic philosophy of Kashmiri Shaivism and make the case that Sri Ramakrishna's life and teaching is the embodiment and fulfillment in entirety of Kashmiri Shaivism. Then after that, we'll, op- we'll have a bit of a conversation, a back and forth. Then we'll open the floor for questions and answers. I suspect Swamiji will have a few discussions about whether or not the world is real and whether or not it's valuable to consider uh, Maya Vada or Mithya Vada, the doctrine of illusionism. And I suspect that we'll have a conversation as to the similarities and differences between Vijnana Vedanta and Kashmiri Shaivism. That's my deep delight today. And I'm very excited to share with you Kashmiri Shaivism, this vast and beautiful philosophy, and hopefully go beyond the Kashmir exegesis and talk about the pan-Indian movement called Tantra, which is far broader than just the masters of Kashmir between the years 900 and 1050. So may this conversation all be an offering to Lord Shiva, to Sri Ramakrishna. I'll go to Swami Medanandaji now so he can start the, start the evening. So Swamiji, please. Thank you so much, Nishant. It's an honor and a pleasure. And thank you so much, everyone, for uh, attending this very exciting session. Let me begin without any more ado. Um, what I'll do is discuss briefly the four of the main tenets of Sri Ramakrishna's philosophy of Vigyana Vedanta. And another thing I'll do, hopefully I'll have time, is after each tenet, I want to raise a few questions in relation to Kashmiri Shaivism. So as, as a way of kind of setting the ball rolling. Um, so let me begin. Okay, why do I call Sri Ramakrishna's philosophy the philosophy of Vigyana Vedanta? It's because I believe that his philosophical teachings are grounded in a unique spiritual state, which he used to call the state of Vigyana. And in many places in the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna in the original Bengali, Kothamrita, he distinguishes two stages in spiritual realization. One is the stage of Jnana, the other is a stage of Vigyana. And he explains the difference as follows. The Jnani gives up his identification with worldly things, discriminating not this, not this, neti, neti. Only then can he realize Brahman. It is like reaching the roof of a house by leaving the steps behind one by one. But the Vigyani, who is more intimately acquainted with Brahman, realizes something more. He realizes that the steps are made of the same materials as the roof, bricks, lime, and brick dust. That which is realized as Brahman through the eliminating process of not this, not this, is then found to have become the universe and all its living beings. The Vigyani sees that the reality which is nirguna, impersonal and attributeless, is also saguna, personal and with attributes. Those who realize Brahman in samadhi, meaning nirvikalpa samadhi, come down also and find that it is Brahman that has become the universe and its living being. This is known as Vigyana. So this is a very important statement, which he makes again and again in numerous places. And this one passage contains the first two tenets of his Vigyana Vedanta. First tenet, the infinite divine reality, according to Sri Ramakrishna, is both nirguna and saguna. That is both attributeless and with attributes, both impersonal and personal, both with and without form. 
sakara and nirakara. Um, and so he often would teach things like Brahma Oshukti Abhed in Bengali, which means Brahman, by which he meant Nirguna Brahman. And Shakti, by which he meant the personal God who creates, preserves, and destroys this universe, are Abheda, which means inseparable but equally real aspects of the same infinite divine reality. Um, and by contrast, Shankara, for instance, uh, the classical Advaita Vedanta, he taught that the ultimate reality is exclusively Nirguna. And the opposite view is held by Ramanuja and Madhva. The ultimate reality, according to them, these bhakti schools of Vedanta, is only taguna, personal, with attributes, Vishnu Narayana. And Sri Ramakrishna, I see, is holding that both Nirguna Brahman and Saguna Brahman are equally real and equally ultimate and inseparable aspects of the same divine reality. And um, I also wanted to mention, regarding the forms of the personal God, Sri Ramakrishna held that there are numerous forms of the personal God none of which are higher than any of the others, okay? No higher and lower with the different forms. And he uses the beautiful metaphor of an ocean. He says, Satchitananda is like an infinite ocean. Intense cold freezes the water into ice, which floats on the ocean and blocks the various forms. Likewise, through the cooling influence of bhakti, one sees forms of God, Shakarmurti, in the ocean of the absolute. These forms are meant for the bhaktas, the lovers of God. But when the sun of knowledge, Ganshuja, rises, the ice melts. It becomes the same water it was before. Water above and water below, everything nothing but water. Everywhere, nothing but water. But you may say that for certain devotees, God assumes eternal forms, nitya sakara, nitya shakara. There are places in the ocean where the ice does not melt at all. It assumes the form of force, potigiraka. So I think Ramakrishna's views on the ultimate reality come closer to Kashmiri Shaivism than to any of the traditional Vedantic schools. Uh, whether it's classical Advaita Vedanta or um, any of the bhakti schools. So that's something I think that would be uh, worth discussing. But I have one question in this regard, which is, does Kashmiri Shaivism grant equal status and value to all the different forms of the personal God, as I think Sri Ramakrishna does? So that's one question. Secondly, Sri Ramakrishna had a very broad view of avatars as well, incarnations of God. And he even says in one place that there, there are infinite incarnations, right? In the future, there will be many more incarnations. God incarnates many, many times. Um, I want to know what the Kashmiri Shaivite view on divine incarnations is, and do they have a hierarchy of avatars? What is their view on avatars? It's another question. Okay, that's um, enough for the first tenet. Second tenet. According to Sri Ramakrishna, the world is a real manifestation of God. So in the first passage I read about Vigyana, he says the Vigyani sees that it is Brahman that has become the 24 cosmic principles, okay? In another passage in the Gospel, which I discussed at length in a separate class in Hollywood a couple of weeks ago, uh, this is from an entry from the Gospel dated 16th of December, 1883. The author of the Gospel, M. Mohandranath Gupta, asked the, the following question, is the world unreal? And Sri Ramakrishna answers as follows. Why should the universe be unreal? That is how Advaitic Jnana Yogis reason. After realizing God, one sees that it is God himself who has become the universe and all living beings. So notice he's saying the world is not unreal. It's fully real as a manifestation of Shakti. And who realizes that? The Vigyan. Okay. So in contrast to classical Advaita Vedanta, which is typically captured in the formula Brahma Satyam Jagat Mithya, Vigyana, Sri Ramakrishna's Vigyana Vedanta can be captured in a different formula, which I'm just throwing it out there. And it's not meant to be sort of, uh, it's meant to be a kind of formula that needs to be elaborated on. So the formula I would, I would give it is Brahma Shakti Satyam, Jagat Satyam. Okay. 
Ultimate reality is both Brahman and Shakti. And this world is a real manifestation of Shakti. And again, I think there are very deep affinities with Kashmiri Shaivism on this, uh, uh, with regard to Sri Ramakrishna's doctrine of this world as a real manifestation of God, because I think Kashmiri Shaivism also says this world is a real manifestation of Shiva. But I have a couple questions, which is somewhat technical, but in, in Kashmiri Shaivism, um, they have the doctrine of Abhata. The Sanskrit term is Abhata. They claim that this world is an Abhata, um, which is translated in different ways, I guess. Uh, uh, um, and I'm wondering what, I mean, first of all, how would you translate Abhata, what do you think is the best translation of the term Abhata to understand the nature of this world as Abhata in Kashmiri Shaivism? So that's one question. Um, another issue is that, you know, Sri Ramakrishna, he uses this, this kind of formulation again and again. He says, the Vigyani sees that Brahman has become the 24 cosmic principles, has become all the individual souls in this, in this insentient universe, has become Hoiche. Which really means has become. Now, that to me sounds something like Parinamavada. If you talk about Vedantic traditions, Parinamavada is one tradition, one, one position taken by some Vedantic schools. It means the doctrine of real transformation, that Brahman actually transforms into this world, or Brahman, at least in some aspect, transforms into this world. And I'm wondering um, whether you see Abhasa as somewhat different. Uh, you know, the Kashmiri Shaivite doctrine of, of Abhasavada, is that, you see that as the same thing as what Sri Ramakrishna is saying when he says Brahman has become the 24 causes principles, or is there a subtle difference there? Okay. Another question regarding the Kashmiri Shaivite doctrine of Abhasa, uh, the Abhasa, this world as Abhasa, is what, according to Kashmiri Shaivites, what is the precise ontological status of this world understood as Abhasa? Um, and because I, I've read some scholarship, like especially by Isabel Ratier, who's a scholar in France, a, a very good scholar of Kashmiri Shaivism. And she's written an article where she talks about the metaphors used in Kashmiri Shaivism. And they often, Kashmiri Shaivites often liken the world to a mirror reflecting Shiva. And again, Abhasa, one way of thinking about Abhasa and possibly translating it is as reflection. And I'm wondering whether, um, that isn't in danger of sort of diminishing the ontological reality of this world. Um, so anyway, these are some of the questions I had regarding the Kashmiri Shaivite doctrine of this world as Abhata. Um, and the final question I have about, about this issue, the second tenet, the world as a real manifestation of God. As I said, I think that Kashmiri Shaivism is fundamentally in agreement with Sri Ramakrishna on this, on this tenet. I think both schools, both traditions, fully accept that this world is a real manifestation of God. But in the details, in the fine-grained details, I think there might be differences. And so this is another question I had. Sri says, Brahman has become the 24 cosmic principles. And as anybody who knows Kashmiri Shaivism will know, they have 36 tattvas, 36 cosmic principles rather than 24. And um, so five shuddha tattvas, seven shuddha ashuddha tattvas, and then 24 ashuddha tattvas in Kashmiri Shaivism. And I believe that the 24 Ashuddha Tattvas in Kashmiri Shaivism correspond to the 24 cosmic principles which Sri Ramakrishna refers to, um, because Sri Ramakrishna is thinking of the Sankhya, the 24 cosmic principles in Sankhya philosophy. So my question is, if that's the case, um, what is the status of these five Shuddha Tattvas and seven Shuddha Shuddha Tattvas in Kashmiri Shaivism? And do you think that Sri Ramakrishna would accept these additional 12 tattvas that we find in Kashmiri Shaivism? And if so, what evidence do you have for that? Um, okay, 
um, let me move on because I don't have much time. Third tenet, according to Sri Ramakrishna, there are infinite paths to God. And he doesn't go into this, uh, indulge in this talk of higher and lower. He gives equal status to many different religious paths. This is what's called in technical terms in philosophy religion, religious pluralism, which means there's no higher and lower here. Um, to give you one example, he says, with sincerity and earnestness, one can realize God through all religions. The Vaishnavas will realize God, and so will the Shaktas, the Advaita Vedantins, and the Brahmins. The Muslims and Christians will realize him too. All will certainly realize God if they are earnest, earnest and sincere. Now, a few questions in this regard. In Kashmiri Shaivism, as far as I'm aware, we have four main sadhanas in a hierarchical order. Anupaya, starting from highest to lowest. So Anupaya, Shambhava, Shakta, and Anava. One question I have is, can, can, can we map these four sadhanas, this hierarchy of sadhanas in Kashmiri Shaivism, onto the four yogas that Sri Ramakrishna talks about and that other Vedantins talk about in any way? And if so, how? That's one question I have. Second, um, <clears throat> from my admittedly cursory study of some Kashmiri Shaivite texts like Pratapigyanridayam and some parts of Tantra Loka, I get the sense that Kashmiri Shaivites tend to be inclusivist with respect to non-Kashmiri Shaivite spiritual paths. They, and but what I mean by inclusivist is, I mean it in a technical sense again, which means that they put their own philosophy on a higher footing. And they say that other paths are not completely wrong, but there's a kind of elaborate hierarchy of high to low or low to high, starting, I believe, with Charvaka materialism and then working their way up to their own highest philosophy of Kashmiri Shaivism. Um, and so I'm wondering whether you uh, have you come across any more pluralistic sounding statements in Kashmiri Shaivite texts where they actually, I think, uh, um, where they where they come closer to Sri Ramakrishna's view, which is giving equal validity to different paths? That's one question I had. Another question is: Does Kashmiri Shaivism ever address non-Hindu religious paths? Um, of course, Sri Ramakrishna again and again talks about Christianity and Islam and other world religions. And I'm just wondering whether Kashmiri Shaivism also uh, addresses non-Hindu religious paths in any way. And if so, what does Kashmiri Shaivism have to say about non-Hindu religious paths? And fourth and finally, this concerns the nature of salvation. There are two separate issues that I want to discuss briefly. The first is, the first question is, is Jivan Mukti possible? Is it possible to attain liberation while still in the physical body? And Sri Ramakrishna's view is, Yes, it's an emphatic yes. And I'll give you one quotation where he says it. He says, he who firmly believes that God alone is the doer and he himself a mere instrument is a Jivan Mukta. Okay, so he fully accepts the possibility of Jivan Mukti. Now, with regard to Kashmiri Shaivism, my question is, does Kashmiri Shaivism fully accept the possibility of Jivan Mukti? And if so, does it accept Jivan Mukti as the highest? state or not. Um, and the reason I ask this is because I think from my study, a little, again, cursory study of Kashmiri Shaivism, I, I feel that it's a little bit complicated in Kashmiri Shaivism. And I wanted to mention here, um, there's, a, there's a wonderful uh, chapter in a book that I edited called the Bloomsbury Research Handbook of Vedanta, written by, this chapter is written by a young scholar um, named Sara Hedling. Um, this is chapter 10 of this book. Her, her chapter is called Non-Dual Philosophies and Dialogue, The World and Embodied Liberation in Advaita Vedanta and Pratyabhigya. And in this article, what she's arguing is that 
there are there are uh, places in the Kashmiri Shaivite corpus, and she especially focuses on Abhiranga Gupta's works, so Tantra Loka, Tantra Sar, and other other places, where he seems to take Videha Mukti, the ideal of leaving the physical body in order to attain liberation, as a higher state than the state of Jivan Mukti. Um, and I wanted to just mention, um, let me let me quote from her article, um, and she's describing basically um, she's summarizing Tantra Loka chapter thirteen. And Tantra Sara, chapter 11, okay, in both places, Abhinavagupta refers to nine types of recipients of grace, okay, Shaktipata. And what she's found, and, I, I, and I've read some of these texts, and, and I agree with her on this, the strongest kind of Shaktipata, which is called Utkrishta Tivra, the accelerated intense descent of power, is so intense that it results in immediate liberation, which entails the death of one's physical body. So as far as I can tell, this is what Abhinavagupta says in Tantra Loka chapter 13 and Tantra Sara chapter 11. Um, and I wanted to mention one prominent scholar of Kashmiri Shaivism named Debabrata Shin, Shin Sharma, Sharma, S-H-A-R-M-A. And he makes a similar argument. He has a book on Kashmiri Shaivism and he says the following. This is a direct quotation from his book. He says, the destruction of the body apparatus is said to be essential for the perfect realization of the essence, the Shivatva. And Devabrata Sen Sharma further suggests that it's only when the Jivan Mukta is completely dissociated from his physical body that he becomes Shiva himself. So in passages like these, in Tantra Loka, I just wonder whether Kashmiri Shaivism um, ultimately says that the highest state of liberation is Videha Mukti rather than Jivan Mukti. And okay, now the second and final question I wanted to discuss regarding salvation is what is the precise nature of post-mortem salvation? And according to Sri Ramakrishna, there, I, I see Sri Ramakrishna's understanding of post-mortem salvation as a kind of many-roomed mansion. It's, it's my analogy, a many-roomed mansion. It means that there's a kind of, there's a room in which there's a Christian heaven. There's another room with the Muslim heaven. There's another room with, with the, the, the heaven for Vaishnavas, right? Dwelling with Krishna in an eternal heaven and so on and so forth. And for Advaita Vedantins, there's no room. There's just dwelling in your own uh, Swarupa, your own true nature as non-dual pure consciousness. So Sharankrita would use the metaphor of eating sugar versus becoming sugar. And he says that Bhaktas, devotees of the personal God, they don't want to become sugar. They want to eat sugar. They want to maintain some separation so that they can enjoy a loving uh, communion, a loving relationship with the personal God in, a, in an eternal heaven. Advaitans don't want that. They just want to be Brahman. And Sri Ramakrishna fully accommodates both kinds of salvation. Now, some more questions in this regard. First question, what is the, what is the precise Kashmiri Shaivite view of postmortem salvation? What is their picture of postmortem salvation? After you leave the body, what does salvation look like? Is it a many-roomed mansion in, in, the, in the sense that Sri Ramakrishna understands it? Another question, does Kashmiri Shaivism accept various eternal lokas, these eternal heavens or realms in which bhaktas of various forms of the personal God reside? So would they be as liberal and generous in accepting, for instance, the Christian heaven, the Muslim heaven, the Vaishnava heaven, um, and so on and so forth? Um, and... Uh, even okay, so then another question is even, even if Kashmiri Shaivism accepts many different lokas in which bhaktas can reside, um, does Kashmiri Kashmir Shaivism ha have a hierarchy of, of 
different salvific states, different states of salvation? And do they consider dwelling in some loka as a kind of lower ideal than the recognition, the pratibhigna of one's identity with Shiva? That's another question I had. Um, because there are some schools like, for instance, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, they have an elaborate hierarchy of salvation. And they accept many different forms of salvation, but there's a hierarchy. And they say the highest is dwelling in Goloka. And I'm just wondering whether Kashmir Shaivism has a similarly hierarchical understanding of different forms of salvation. And finally, uh, I have another question about this. Does Kashmir Shaivism accept universal salvation? Do they believe that every soul will eventually attain the highest salvation? On my understanding of Sri Ramakrishna, he fully accepts universal salvation. He says in one place, in many places in the gospel, he says, Everybody will eventually attain God realization. Everybody will eventually attain liberation. And he gives an, an analogy. He says, some people are fed at 6 a.m., other people at 12 p.m., other people at 6 p.m. in the evening, other people at midnight, but, but everybody will be fed. And what he means by that is every single human being will, or soul really, will eventually attain liberation, if not in this life, right? That would correspond to 6 a.m. maybe. Then in some subsequent life, a future embodiment, maybe 10 lives from now, maybe 100 lives from now, maybe a million lives from now, but everybody, nobody will be deprived of the highest goal of liberation. And what is the Kashmiri Shaivite stance on universal salvation? Now, I want before I conclude, I wanted to ask a couple miscellaneous questions. These are not related directly to the four tenets that I've just outlined, but these are miscellaneous questions about Kashmiri Shaivism in relation to Sri Ramakrishna. So one, Sri Ramakrishna is very fond of talking about the six chakras, which is obviously a tantric uh, doctrine, right? And Sri Ramakrishna says that the Vigyani shuttles between the fifth and sixth chakras. He says, like a boat racing between two points. And he says, I don't want to go beyond the sixth plane and keep my mind a long time in the seventh. And I'm just wondering about this. He's, he's describing the state of the Vigyani as shuttling back and forth like a boat between the fifth and sixth uh, planes of consciousness, is there an equivalent spiritual experience in Kashmiri Shaivism? That's one question I had. Another question I had is, Quran Krishna explains in detail, based on his own spiritual experiences of the chakras, what, what kind of realizations occur at the different chakras. And he says at the fourth chakra, at the heart, you have a realization of the jivatma in the form of a flame. And the sadhaka says, what is this? What is this? The sadhaka cries out because Finally, the sadhaka realizes I'm not the body-mind complex. I'm an internal soul separate from the body-mind complex. Then he says the fifth plane, the, the fifth, uh, or, or uh, um, well, okay, we're, we're actually, sorry. Um, so that's the third chakra, I think, right? And so the fourth chakra would be the throat. I'll just, I'll talk in terms of, so he says, when you reach the throat, the level of the throat, he says, you can talk only about God, nothing but God. Sticks between the eyebrows next plane of consciousness. And he says that there you have a realization of the personal God, of a form of the personal God, but there's still a kind of a film, a kind of a very transparent film or, or kind of barrier separating you from God. You're not fully um, identified with God. And then he says that finally there's the thousand little uh, petal lotus, the Hasrara chakra. Um, and and um, there you have Nivigalpa Samadhi. You, you just recognize your identity with non-dual Brahman, non-dual for consciousness. And I, I would like to know um, whether Kashmiri Shaivites interpret these chakras in the same way that Sri Ramakrishna does, or whether there are subtle differences or significant differences. Um, and another thing is, uh, in the context of the gospel, many devotees of Sri Ramakrishna, and some monks, I've heard this from monks too, 
they ask this question about Sri Ramakrishna's teachings on the six chakras. They say, well, the whole doctrine of these six chakras seems to be kind of hierarchical in a sense, because definitely the lower three chakras are really lower. I mean, uh, they they're so long as your mind is at the level of you know the three lower chakras, you're going to be uh, obsessed with worldly pleasures and these kinds of things. And then as you progressively go up, you have these kind of higher states of spiritual realization. But then the question arises: Is the six is the state where you realize the personal God, the form of the personal God between the eyebrows, does Sri Ramakrishna consider that to be a lower realization than, than the state of Nivigapa Samadhi, which is the thousand petal lotus, because it's higher above, you know, I mean, should we think about the chakras as, as a hierarchy? This is the question. Um, this is something I've, I've been wondering for a while, actually. And if so, then doesn't that make Nivigapa Samadhi the highest? I mean, that's one question I had. Another, um, and finally, two more questions I have before um, opening it up. Sri Krishna, in a number of places in the gospel, talks about Vamachara, the left-handed path of Tantra, um, which involves sexual practices. And what he says is that it's also a path. It's not, not a path. It is a path. But it's like entering the house, not through the front entrance, but through the scavenger's entrance. So he nonetheless cautions spiritual aspirants against um, going down this path, the path of left-handed tantra. And I'm wondering what Kashmiri Shaivism has to say about Vamachara. That's another question. And um, finally, one of the keynotes of Sri Ramakrishna's teachings, as any of you who have studied the gospel will know, is the renunciation, the necessity to renounce lust and greed, what he calls in Bengali, kamani kanchan. And when householder devotees would come to him, he would say to them, it's fine that you married, but after having one or two children, try to live with your spouse like brother and sister, which means completely stop and try to be celibate, even in your marriage. That should be, I mean, if you're really spiritual aspirants in a marriage, you should eventually evolve to the point where you've completely eliminated uh, sex from your life. And I, I also would like to know, what is the Kashmir Shaivite stance on that? If it's different from Sharam Krishna's, I'd like to know um, wh what the stance is in, um, whether you think Kashmir Shaivites would disagree with Sri Ramakrishna's teachings on, on this issue. Thank you so much. I look forward to the discussion. Om Namah Shivaya. This is going to be this is going to be so much fun. <laughs> so you mentioned the Pratyabhigya Hridaya. Let's use maybe predominantly verses from that text. I think there are three verses of particular interest to us. The first verse, which, you know, the not the first verse. I think even before the first verse, the Mangala Shloka itself of the Pratyabhikya uh, gives us, I think, the whole kind of goal of Kashmir Shaivism. And I would summarize this as trying to have our cake and eat it too. We just want both. We want Parinamavada. We want Vivartavada. We want uh, the Jnana Mithyavada. And we want, you know, a very dualistic sort of this world, you know, Karya Drishti, Astikarta kind of view also. We want creator and creation view as well. So we're really trying to have our cake and eat it too. So what I'm going to do is I think I'll just say a little bit about Kashmir Shaivism. It's a very vast philosophy, but I want to talk a little bit about the influences behind masters like Somananda, Utpala Deva, and all that. And I think that will contextualize our conversation a bit. And then I'll just go down through the list of questions that you so graciously provided us. So everyone excited? This is going to be, I think, quite exciting. And please prepare your questions, okay? From what you've heard, start formulating your questions. You can put them in the chat. And later, we'll have an opportunity to unmute and raise your hands and ask and, and all of that. Okay. So the first, first thing to note then is that Tantra is a pan-Indian movement. So it's far broader than just the Shaiva exegesis of Kashmir that happens between 900 and 1050 AD. 
Hmm? Arguably, like Somananda is the big granddaddy of this lineage, but Utpala Deva perhaps is one of the first masters that we're interested in. And Abhinava Gupta comes from, you know, a long lineage of the Spanda, Pratyabhikya, but also Trika and Krama. So Trika, Krama, these two schools are particularly influential in Kashmir around the time when Abhinava Gupta would have been learning and practicing. So let's say a bit about the Krama first, the Maharta. It's sometimes called Maharta. So I point you to a text, the Shiva Bhododhaya Manjari. And I think I want to say a little bit about your uh, about to what extent does Kashmir Shaivism engage with non-Vedic religions? You know, now the thing about Kashmir is it's very close to the Silk Road. So arguably, there are some influences from Central Asia coming in. Also, it's in the overlap between Buddhism and Bhutan and Tibet and Hinduism and the Indian subcontinent itself. So when you look at a text like the Shiva Bododaya Manjari, you get something that looks almost Buddhistic in nature. For instance, I point to the very first verse. It says there, um, in the very first verse of that text, it uses the word Asvabhavataha. It says, um, Labdha bhododhaya nandam vande sansthanam atmanaha. Second line says, the, the, the point of this text is to attain the naturally arising joy. For, uh, and, and that naturally arising joy of awareness, of awakeness, that's the God I worship. So it's still devotional in that sense. However, it says that everything in the world around us through samyak bhoda vicharena, Bhavanam asvabhavataha, through the right samyak, a very Buddhistic term, right? Samyak bhoda vicharena. So it's doing a type of vichara into what? Into awakeness. By doing the correct uh, inquiry into awakeness, one realizes the lack of essence nature, asvabhava, of all bhavanam. Traditions in the Kashmiri uh, scene, you know. Oh, are we? Are we? Are we I, I think your connection was a little bad, but I hope we're good now. Yeah, please continue. Are we okay? All right, yeah. good. See, so they did. Uh, Viranatha was upset that we were talking about the Krama now. They're like, no, 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 cannot. <laughs> so the Krama. Notice this is one of the most like it was one of the most secretive and closed traditions. Because it was a goddess-worshipping tradition, it worshipped the 12 Kalis, the Kalikula, the family of Kalis. And um, it was very sensualist and embodied in its orientation. It saw the world in as not as an obstacle to spiritual life, but as an opportunity. So it encouraged a lot of sensualist practices. And in this text itself, many such sensualist practices are suggested, like uh, uh, practices post-orgasm even, practices while eating sweets and stuff like that, you know? But here in the first verse, it's saying that actually all these, these uh, mental states, these cognitions are essencelessness. They're almost like an aja kind of way. Then over the next several verses up till verse 11, it makes very Buddhistic arguments for why there's no such thing as a body, no such thing as a mind, no such thing as caste, no such thing as a name. And so you might, you might think that we're working with a Buddhistic text here, it's a Buddhist text. And you might feel like, you might get the impression that it's a, you know, ajata kind of vibe, since nothing has any essence nature, nothing exists apart from this bodha, this awakeness replete with joy. So you get that vibe from a very embodied goddess-worshipping text, you know, uh, tradition, krama. Now, the krama was very influential here in, in Kashmir. Another school that was very influential was the trika. So I point you to the Vijnana Bhairava, and I think this is going to be important insofar as we're discussing chakras. In the Vijnana Bhairava, 
In the seventh verse, Lord Shiva says to Parvati that this is the Tantra Saram Idam. This is the essence of Tantra. So Shiva is now saying, I'm about to reveal to you a secret and it's the very heart of Tantra. It's the best of my teachings. And then he goes on to say in verse nine that this world is Maya, that this world is Swapna, that this world is Gandharva Nagra. These three words should be of much interest to us because Maya means illusion. He says, actually, this world is essenceless, like the magician's trick, which is um, an analogy that Sri Ramakrishna sometimes uses, the magic and the magician. The magician is alone is real, but the magic isn't. So Shiva himself says this world is a magician's trick. Another word they use is Indra Jala, the net of Indra, which is like this illusion kind of it's sparkly and it attracts you, but it's ultimately not real. It's a magic trick. Then he calls it Swapna, dream. Here you can see Gaudapada smiling in glee. And then he calls it Gandharva Nagara. It's a city in the clouds built by fairies. And then in verse 13, Shiva actually says that all my previous teachings were like sweet for children or goblin stories to scare them into doing the right thing. So notice, it seems like the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra might actually be privileging a non-duality as hierarchically better or more essential or a higher revelation than the other traditions that Shiva is now calling sweets or horror stories for children. You know, he's saying that. So I think uh, some people, when they come to Kashmir Shaivism, Shaivism, get this impression that it's a world affirming, world is real kind of philosophy, but not all the time. You know, like these two texts show you that there is room for Mayavada, you know, Mityavada kind of views with some key differences. So verse seven, verse nine, verse 13 from the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. And Shiva himself says in verse seven, this is Tantra Saram Idam. Okay. So now once we start talking about Kashmir Shaivism, we have to understand that these two traditions are perhaps the strongest influences on writers like Abhinavagupta and Shema Raja, who composes the Pratyabhige Hridaya. So we have to always have in the back of our mind, the Trika and the Krama. One interesting thing about the Trika is it probably, as scholars think, emerged in Maharashtra, um, and it was founded by this man, Triambaka, probably. And in its initial form, interestingly, it was very um, tolerant of all three types of spiritual attitudes, duality, qualified non-duality, and non-duality proper. You know, there's one thing about the Trika is it seemed to have this tolerance for different schools of philosophy. So the Trika, it's called the Trika because there are three goddesses that were central to this tradition. One is Para, who looks a lot like the modern Saraswati. The other one is Apara, who's probably like a proto-Kali, like a crone, drooping breast, fangs, very scary. And another in-between deity called Parapara. And you could kind of place them on the trident such that Apara is there and then to the left is Apara, you know, Apara to the left, Parapara. So then they actually map the various teachings of Lord Shiva onto the trident. And they say, you know, the Shaiva Siddhanta, the broad base of the Shaiva tradition, that corresponds to the Apara, kind of like Apara Vidya, the lower revelation of Lord Shiva to the dualist. Then higher than that is the Raudra Agamas. And those are qualified non-duality type of texts. And they correspond to the Parapara. And the supreme revelation to Para is the non-dual text, the Bhairava Agamas. You know, about 64 in number, maybe a very powerful tradition of Lord Shiva meant for only the highest aspirants. So you get a kind of Adhikari Veda here. But importantly, the Trika itself was tolerant to all these schools. Why? Because it would be heresy to say that Lord Shiva was wrong in his dualistic form and in his non-dualistic. It's, it's like he comes and he reveals duality. And then later he says, just kidding, here's non-qualified non-duality. Then what about his dualistic revelation? It would be blasphemy to say that, you know, him saying the dualistic stuff was wrong. So we have to accept that Shiva did reveal dualistic agamas. He revealed qualified non-dualistic agamas. And so even non-dualists have to accept that those are valid. And the Trika did. 
You know, now the daughter of Triambaka supposedly created the Kaulatrika, which is a more kind of goddess worshiping left hand sort of more, I guess, non-dual version of the Trika. And that eventually influences Abhinavagupta. Okay. So I just already want to say that there is a kind of desire here in the Trika to harmonize. You know, this desire to see unity in the three different schools. And you see that because non-dual masters interact with dualist texts. So a good example is the Shiva Jnana Bodha. Um, this is a very dualistic text. It makes the argument that just as the anthill presupposes the ants, so too does this world presuppose a creator. And it actually says, Prabhuhara, the creator has to be Shiva, not any other deity, but Shiva. So maybe to your question as to what about tolerance to other forms, I think in the dualistic form of Shaivism, Shaiva Siddhanta, I don't think that much tolerance is there. I mean, you can see in the Shiva Jnana Bodha, it just says, Prabhuhara, the God has to be Hara. And he makes an argument as to why that must be the case. You know, um, but non-dual masters are interacting with this dualistic text and heartily commenting upon it, giving non-dual readings because they see that dualistic text as valid, as a true revelation of Lord Shiva, you know, that can be interpreted in both qualified and proper non-dual ways. So we get that. We get qualified non-dual attitudes. And then you get Abhinava Gupta's commentary on the Brahma Yamala Tantra. Now, this is a very Vamachara text, mostly interested in sorcery and magic, but Abhinava Gupta is interested in it because he sees these beautiful um, passages about Kundalini Shakti. So he's able to see the potential in texts that are mostly like magical tomes. And so he takes the time to esoterize it, interiorize it, comment upon it. So we have, you know, Abhinava Gupta's in some sense stamp of approval for even the most fringe magic text of the tradition. All right. So the next observation then to make is, does Kashmir Shaivism grant equal view to all forms of God? Well, I think it's tolerant insofar as these are revelations of Shiva in the Agamic literature, you know, I, and, and insofar the, as the Agamic literature presents all three modes, qualified, non-duality, non-duality, and duality, I would say we can heartily agree that Kashmir Shaivism is tolerant to, to, to attitudes, to all the different attitudes, but maybe not all the different forms. You know, and I think verse 19 of Utpala Deva's Shiva Sotravali would show you that because he even says the followers of Vishnu and the followers of Brahma, they will never understand the higher glory of Lord Shiva. So you get a little bit of intolerance there in Utpala Deva. Now, another note I want to make Utpala Deva is perhaps the Gyani par excellence of our tradition. He composed the Ishvara Pratyabhikya Karika, which essentially founds the Pratyabhikya school. And if you read that text, you'll see it's a work of tremendous philosophical insight, very non dual, written by the Gyani of Gyanis. But then, in the same breath, uh, this master, Utpala Deva, composes the Shiva Stotravali. And the Shiva Sutravali, the garland of hymns to Shiva, is so dualistic in nature, so devotional. And uh, you, you see there this kind of attitude of mother, please don't make me a dry monk. I don't want to be an, in it, an inert thing. I want to enjoy the company of thy devotees. I want to sing thy praises. He even says in verse 20, my only prayer, Lord Shiva, this is verse 20 of the, um, the final stotra of this garland of hymns. He says, Lord, um, all I want is to unceasingly chant thy name and become intoxicated with the liquor of thy devotion, dancing in the graveyard with the nine ghosts, meaning the senses and the mind and all that. So you get that same attitude, this idea of like the highest state is to sport with God from Utpala, but because it's devotional and kind of dualistic, he does kind of give the shaft maybe <laughs> to the Vaishnavas and the followers of Brahma, which I think are Vedantists. Okay, so maybe there's not that much tolerance in Utpala for Vishnu, for Vedanta. You get that sort of tone of condescension for Vedanta. Jayarata, I think in one text, calls yogis and Buddhists 
no better than coiled serpents sleeping. You know, because there's this idea, it's called the sapta uh, pramatas. There's these seven perceivers, right? And the first type of being, the first way to perceive this world, because this world is nana. Why is it nana? Why does it appear to be manifold? Well, because there are many ways of looking at it. Tan nana rupa grahya grahaka bedat. There are many ways that the grahya and the grahaka can be, you know, they say one way is the sakala the bound soul who only sees manifoldness. Higher than that is the pralaya kala, a person in deep sleep. So maybe in a kind of hint of the videha mukti kind of state, the pralaya kala is higher than the sakala because in deep sleep they are there. Then higher than that is the vijnana kala who is somebody in samadhi, maybe even nirvikalpa samadhi. Then there's higher states. As a, as a point of mystical experience, they've gone beyond nirvikalpa samadhi arguably to the next state is called the mantra. Then higher than that, you become... Uh, Mantreshvara, Lord of the Mantras, and you come a, a Mantra Maheshvara, and then on and on and on, right? So now they're saying the yogis in Nirvikalpa Samadhi are like no better than coiled serpents sleeping. They haven't gone beyond the... And, and you, you hear that when Sri Ramakrishna scolds Naren, young Swami Vekranda, for wanting to remain in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. You're asking for such an insignificant thing. You get that same tone in some of these Kashmiri masters. They're saying, like, why be content with Nirvikalpa Samadhi? That state is just Shiva. If you're in that state, you haven't yet reclaimed your Shakti, your power to make yourself manifest as all of this. You haven't recognized Shiva yet because you haven't recognized Shakti. You know? So you have to go beyond that. So insofar as um, you know, Kashmir Shaivism is tolerant to different views, it seems to kind of condescend to yogis, Buddhists, Vedantists, Vaishnavas, who maybe don't have that higher realization. And so in that sense, I would agree that Swami, uh, you know, Swami is saying that Sri Ramakrishna's view is maybe slightly broader and maybe more inclusive. You know, okay, that's the first thing. Now about non-Vedic religions, the point I was trying to make about the Shiva Bododaya Manjari is that it's very Buddhistic. And in that sense, you get a lot of Buddhist sentiments expressed within Shaivism. And I think that's the void language of Shaivism. You get that most when you hear Shiva described as like Shunya. And they're very interested in void, no-thingness. And they, they don't actually like the, maybe not so much the word Atman or you know, they prefer shunya and, and in these words that kind of imply a, an essence nature rather than a self, which sounds a bit more like Mahayana or Vajrayana Buddhism, these tantric forms of Buddhism. Now, remember, the Krama people actually didn't like to be called tantrikas. Some of the like kaulas, the early kaulas, didn't like the word tantrika because it meant ritualist. So they wanted to actually move away from ritual and they wanted practices that were more interior and more essentialized. This brings to mind Sri Ramakrishna's very first teaching in the gospel of the, you know, Om, you know, the, the Gayatri merging into the Om and the Om merging into silence. This idea where you move from an external ritual to a more internal practice and finally you transcend all practice. So insofar as these people were interested in going beyond ritual, they didn't like to be called Tantrikas. Also, they didn't like to be called Vaidika. Some of the more like Kaula schools like Krama and Trika didn't actually see themselves as belonging to the mainstream Vedic religion. Much like the Buddhists and the Jains, they actually questioned not the cultural legitimacy of the Vedas, but its spiritual legitimacy. They didn't think much of the Vedika like traditions were conducive to spiritual liberation, particularly with its norms around caste. You know, they thought that they were fundamentally mistaken in privileging Brahmins and men, which the Shaiva Siddhanta did. I think the Shaiva Siddhanta wanted Vedic valid validation. And so it often privileged men and Brahmins. But later schools like, you know, the Kaula wouldn't. They would fully initiate women. And those women, like we know with goddess Keoravati, they all became not only gurus, but lineage holders in and of themselves. You know, so I think there is another parallel with Sri Ramakrishna, an anti-caste attitude. 
It's called the Eka Varna Bhairava, the one caste of Lord Bhairava. So the next question, what about avatars? Now, this is very interesting because unlike the Vaishnava doctrine, there's no sense in like, okay, wait, there's like a special avatara. Rather, anybody who's realized Shiva is an avatara because the guru is Shiva himself. So here I'll point you to Madhurajas, um, Dhyana Mantra for Abhinava Gupta. So if you Google Abhinava Gupta, you'll see this picture of him sitting between two dutis. They're holding jugs of wine. There are dancers and musicians and pundits and all gathered around him. So that picture, actually, that image of Abhinava Gupta sitting in Virasana, playing an ektara, thumbing the rosary, all of that comes from this Dhyana Mantra composed by you know, one of his disciples, Madhuraja, a southern Indian disciple, actually. Now, Madhuraja, in that Dhyana Mantra, says Abhinava Gupta is Lord Shiva himself. So the idea is Abhinava Gupta is not channeling Lord Shiva. He is Lord Shiva. And insofar as Lord Shiva is seen as Brahman in this tradition, then we do get the idea that Brahman does manifest itself in form. And that form is a master such as Abhinava Gupta. Now you hear the same language around a very contemporary Kashmiri Shaiva master, Swami Lakshmanju. Many people considered him to be Shiva himself. But arguably, this is not unique to Lakshmanju Maharaj or arguably even Abhinava Gupta. This is unique. Uh, not unique to them. It's it's true of every guru. Every guru is seen as Shiva. That's why the Agamas are said to be revealed by Shiva, although their authorship in some cases can be attributed to humans. You see, those humans, I think to the Shaivas, were Shiva. And in the first three Kaula Sutras, you can see this vibe that like the true guru is not the individual, but the guru shakti that runs through them. In page 26 of Inspired Talks, Swami Vekranda uses the chain power the, the guru has a, the, the chain power, you know, he, he directly references this guru shakti. So once that guru shakti is in a person, that person is Shiva. And you mentioned, Maharaj, the nine types of awakening. That's definitely true. The highest type of awakening is instant KO. And the only reason that happens is because you come into contact with the guru and the glance of the guru gives you the shakti path at a very high dose. He can like send you straight to Videha Mukti. How does that happen? Because gurus don't give shakti path. Gurus just give diksha. Gurus can't actually give Shaktipat. Who gives Shaktipat? Shiva gives Shaktipat. But insofar a guru's glance has the power to give Shaktipat, therefore the guru must be Shiva. So we kind of get this idea that there is room for avatars, but maybe not in the Vaishnava sense. So I would say Kashmir Shaivas are way broader with this avatar doctrine. Everybody who's enlightened is Shiva. Because what it means, as I think you alluded to, Maharaj, to be enlightened in this tradition is to just recognize that you're Shiva just to recognize that in each and every cognition, I am Shiva creating this world. So once I recognize that, technically, that's as much Shiva as anybody's going to be, <laughs> you know? Okay, now the next thing, uh, maybe I don't want to touch Abhasa yet because I think that would be quite loaded. You know, we're going to get into some Vivarta and Parinama. The next thing I want to say is maybe, let me just kind of wrap up a little bit by talking about the um, Mangla Shloka of Shema Raja. So he says, Om Namah Shivaya, salutations to Lord Shiva, Satatam, so salutations Lord Shiva, who is in each and every moment, satatam, unceasingly, always doing the five acts. So the five acts, uh, shrishti, siddhi, you know, sanghara, and also additionally, anugraha and nigraha. So Lord Shiva is creating, maintaining, destroying, revealing himself and concealing himself. So interestingly, this is what most dualistic tradition traditions feel about God. God creates, God maintains, God destroys, God bestows grace and God, you know, maybe the opposite of grace is judgment or something like that. So the first half of this Mangla Shloka waxes dualistic. 
Lord Shiva, the creator, the maintainer, the destroyer. Then it goes on to say, Chidananda Ghanna. It's interesting that this Ghanna to me sounds a lot like Rosh. You know, Sri Ramakrishna is saying this world is, you know, Rosh. It's soaked in awareness. The Kashmir Shaivas love this word Ghana. It's that consciousness is saturated with awareness. As if awareness pervades consciousness in this nectarian way, which implies a mystic experience, I think, more than just a philosophical doctrine. So, Chidananda Ghanna, Svatma. Hmm? So this idea is that my very own self, consciousness saturated with bliss, is Shiva. And interestingly, it's doing five things. This is where we depart from Vedanta. You know, Vedanta would not say Brahman does anything. Whereas here we say Brahman has an active dynamic component, which is very much like Sri Ramakrishna's Shakti. You know, Brahman has this dynamic quality called Shakti, and it does five things. But wait, insofar as Shiva is my very own self, then I'm doing these five things. Satatam, in each and every cognition, when I bring my attention to something, it's created for me. When I, take my, when I keep my attention there, it's maintained. If I take my attention away, it goes away. If I remember that it's me who creates, maintains, and destroys my experience, then it's anugraha. If I forget that it's me doing all of this, then it's nigraha. So now the question of like, what is jivan mukta, what is liberation according to Kashmir Shaivism? It's just recognizing this. And so what then do we make of lokas, other planes? Arguably, and we get a vast loka system, 118 bhuvanas. You know, and maybe that's not even an exhaustive list. We get 118. You know, arguably, it doesn't really matter what loka I'm in, as long as I recognize that in that loka, satatam pancha <laughs> So whether I'm in like Vaikuntha loka or Kailash, or whether I'm here in this bu loka or whatever, as long as I know that each and every cognition is being created, maintained, and dissolved by me, that's what it is to be liberated. So notice liberation here, I don't think means going to a loka. It just means in that loka, recognizing that I'm creating it. You know, so that's one thing about the lokas. Now, I'm very excited about this question, the four upayas, how to map them. So you're right. There is a hierarchy here. Anupaya being the highest, because only the highest type of student can receive this. So it's an adhikari beda here. If you're fit, uh, you don't need to practice at all. You just have to come into contact with the guru and you'll get your shaktipata and you will be fully embodied from that point on liberated. You know, or maybe in the highest case of Shaktipata, Videha Mukti, then and there. However, the other upayas, starting with Shambhava upaya, ending with Anava upaya, um, can be practiced all together. Just like the four yogas are not mutually exclusive, the upayas themselves are not mutually exclusive. So Anupaya aside, the idea is actually to combine these upayas. So if you look at the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, you get a whole different slew of practices and they're by no means karma or by, by, the, by no means independent of one another. They can all be practiced together at the same time. So Shambhava Upaya practices are just opening up to the grace of Lord Shiva. So if you stare at a wall, for instance, and just allow your mind to become spacious, you sky gaze and then suddenly close your eyes and you spontaneously discover your inner vastness, that's Shambhava. Nothing to do. It's more about not doing. You know? Shambhava Upaya. And uh, interestingly enough, Sri Ramakrishna too, as a guru, would often give people these types of Shambhavi initiations. Like in Sri Ramakrishna's first or second encounter with Naren, he put his right foot on Naren's chest and Naren goes into a kind of nirvikalpa samadhi. That's very like Shaiva, this kind of laying on of hands. And, you know, it's called Shambhavi Diksha. This idea of like just the blessed means. Then the next one is Shaktupaya, which corresponds, I think, to Jnana Yoga. Shaktupaya is just the path of contemplation, of analysis, of inquiry. Samyak bodha vicharena. It's a vichara path. That's Shaktupaya. The way of Shakti is just philosophizing. It's called the Gnostic means, maybe. Then, finally, you have Anava Upaya, which is the broad base of practice. And this includes Puja, Homa, Japa, 
what have you. So these are all the practices. Karma yoga, um, you know, uh, Raja yoga, Bhakti yoga, these would all be included in Anava Upaya. Anava Upaya is any practice that you do that arguably other people know you're doing. But interestingly, what Abhinava Gupta does in Tantra Loka is to try to esoterize or interiorize these practices. You know, so he tries to move you away from Japa to Ajapa. He tries to say puja is not what you do with external substrates, but something you do inside from Bahir Puja to Manasa Puja. You get the same language in Swami Brahmananda and his guide to spiritual life. He says to a student, you know, the, the grossest form of worship is Bahir, external. Higher than that is Manasa. Higher than that is Japa. Higher than that is Samadhi. That same language is an Abhinava Gupta. Okay. So insofar as we map the four yogas onto the Upayas, the Karma, Bhakti would all map onto Anava Upaya, Jnana would map onto Shaktupaya, and Shambhava Upaya, which would be opening to grace. You know, and Anupaya would be obviously no path. And, and Sri Ramakrishna often says that about certain individuals that for them practice is superfluous. The Ishvara Kotis are already free, so thereby he's implying that they are the Anupaya candidates. You know, they're already free. They don't really need to do any practice. Okay, so would Sri Ramakrishna accept the 36 tattvas? I think so. Most certainly. Why? Because obviously I think the 24 tattva system is most commonly known. And remember, Kashmir very quickly was, you know, by the time it had this fully fledged philosophy, it was invaded and almost overnight state patronage for these gurus and for the institutions was wiped out by the Mughal invasion of like the 12th century. So um, it was very difficult for these ideas to get past the borders of Kashmir. Until recently, this philosophy has been pretty undeveloped and underground. You know, so I sometimes ask, why didn't Swami Vivekananda reference Abhinava Gupta a bit more than he did, given that so much of what he says is so in line with Kashmir Shaivism? You know, and, and maybe it's because of a lack of awareness. Maybe there was just not a lot of understanding of these, as, as I think we discussed sometime, of these philosophies that never made it out of Kashmir. They survived maybe in Tibet and Bhutan. And now we hear a Zen gong or a Tibetan gong. And we say, oh, it came from, but we have those ideas in Kashmir. Would Sri Ramakrishna accept the 36 tattvas? I'm almost certain that he would if he knew about them. And he says things, you know, the evidence here would be him saying like, God is both with form and without form and many more things besides. So he's giving room here for there to be much more than what is spelled out by the conversations that he has. And so really the, the 36 tattvas are just elaborations of certain principles. What is Maya has five parts. It's got five kanchakas. You could take Maya as a tattva, it's got five in one. Then you could say the other tattvas are just variations on the phrase uh, aham idam aham. If the emphasis is on the idam, then you're a mantra. If the emphasis is balanced between aham and idam, then you are Ishvara, the God of the world. If your emphasis is on aham, then you are Sadashiva, like kind of like a Godhead. And if you go even beyond that sentence, then you can be Shiva and Shakti and Hridayam. So they're just kind of nuances and inflections, you know, maybe what Ishan would call Pratyaya, just inflections on, on tattvas. So, and that's so much for the 36 tattvas. Now, as far as inclusive, inclusivity goes, I know we're referencing Pratyabhikya. There's the eighth mantra there, Tad Bhumika Sarva Darshana Sitaiha. Now, this is important to me. I think by the time you get to Shema Raja, there's this attitude that every school of philosophy are all valid expressions of Shakti, of Chitti, of goddess awareness. They're all valid. Why? Because everybody gets just what they want when they come here. So even the Charvaka is accepted, which is a kind of inclusivity you don't see in many um, Indian traditions. So I think they would go so far as to say the Charvaka is worshipping Shakti just in her material embodied form. They just worship Shakti without Shiva. And that's valid. In the Sangati, you know, in the commentary that, or the gloss that Shema Raja does for this eighth verse, he actually says the Buddhists are right in their own way. The Charvakas are right in their own way. 
the yogis are right in their own way. So you get this sense that they're all valid. But yeah, we're most valid. Why are we most valid? <laughs> because we are Paramadvaya. We've gone beyond even Advaita. We're, we're, we're most valid because we're the most inclusive. And we're, we're most valid insofar as we've had the highest mystical experience. We've gone beyond the Vijnana Kalas and have, have had mystical experiences beyond Nirvikalpa Samadhi. And that's what makes these traditions higher. You know, I, I did hear though from oral transmissions, uh, Acharya Ji, Saneshwar Timalsina, he kind of gave me the impression that uh, the attitude within Kashmir Shaivism is, is, is not as hierarchical and is a little more inclusive than this. You know, they're all valid. Um, Jivan Mukta, verse 16 of the Pratya Bigya Hridaya, I think spells out Jivan Mukta. I, I don't have it down by memory, so let me tell you. Chidananda Labhe, Deha Dishu, Chetya Maneshwapi, Chid Aikatmiya, Pratipati Dhardhyam, Jivan Muktihi. So when one Labha, when one gets this Chidananda, then even with the body, one is a, when one is established in this Chidananda, then even while having the cognition of the deha, the body, etc., um, that person is that person is called a Jivan Mukta. So that means if a person can remain arguably in samadhi with eyes open, they're a Jivan Mukta. That's our definition for Jivan Mukta. And it's highly valued. The idea to have your eyes open and actually see all around you the Vimarsha of Prakasha, the reflection of Shiva as the world, that I think is one of the most exalted states in this tradition. Shema Raja seems to be fetishizing it. He seems to be saying it's higher than Videha Mukta. Why? Because his whole text is about achieving that state, not about achieving Videha Mukta. In verse 18, he gives 18, no, a couple, maybe about 10 practices, 10 practices to actualize this verse 16. So maybe that's a case for why the Videha Mukta is not as desired as the Jivan Mukta. Some people say we invented the term. You know, Vidyaranya Swami in his Jivan Mukta Viveka is writing in the 15th century. But we know Vidyaranya, although he was loyal to Advaita Vedanta, also composed Sri Vidya texts. So he was a highly tantricized Advaitin, right? So I would think that Jivan Mukta is, is an idea that appears maybe first in Kashmir Shaivism and then later becomes a prominent feature of medieval Vedanta with like authors like Vidyaranya Swami. So insofar as Tantra originates Jivan Mukta, I think we can safely say that it's an important state, maybe even the highest state, you know? So anyway, going on, post-mortem salvation. Now, what about this? Technically, there is no post-mortem. There's, of course, Videha, but uh, Shiva arguably just continues playing. So I want to argue maybe this case for like not everyone will be liberated because everyone technically is already liberated. We're all already Shiva, but sometimes Shiva just desires to be a Sakala, a bound soul. And maybe it's Shiva's desire to be a bound soul forever. Not to say that person isn't liberated. They're already Shiva. It's just that Shiva wants to be a bound soul. So he expresses himself as a bound soul in that individual. Then the moment Shiva wants to become a Sadaka, the Shaktipata comes and that person starts to seek out Diksha, Guru, etc. Then the moment Shiva wants to become a Jivan Mukta, that person is liberated. So it all depends on Shaktipata. It all depends on the will and the Svatantriya, rather the, the freedom of and autonomy of Lord Shiva. So here the argument is Lord Shiva is so free that he's free enough to accept bondage willingly. You see, it's part of his game. So I don't think there's universal liberation. I don't think we can say that. I don't think Shiva's best state is like being free. I think maybe he enjoys himself as much being a bound soul as he does being a sadhaka, as he does being a free, free soul. So I think that's a little bit about like Nitya Bhakta, Nitya Krishna. Maybe like there's this idea of you just get what you want. But what do you want? What Shiva wants. 
If a person wants to be like Acharvaka and just live for pleasure, that's because Shiva wants that. Shiva expressing that desire in that person goes on to live a material life and suffer happily. Then um, when Shiva wants spiritual teaching, the desire itself for liberation comes from Shaktipat, that Shubhicha, you know, that spontaneous, this auspicious urge for spirituality comes from Shiva. You know, and then Abhinava Gupta goes to great lengths to explain why Shaktipata is the only factor here. Uh, and you can't earn it. You can't practice for it. It just comes. Who knows? And you get that vibe from Sri Ramakrishna saying like, you know, Masharada main, mainly. You can do as much japa as you want, but without grace, nothing will happen. So I don't, I don't think that Kashmir Shaivism necessarily subscribes to universalist liberation insofar as they don't have this progressive path idea. We're already even now in our bondage liberated. See, because we're always Shiva. Yeah. Okay. Now, finally, um, maybe, okay, I want to say this about chamatkara, aesthetic rapture. So the goal in Kashmir Shaivism, once you recognize your Shiva, you actually just continue your life in this state of aesthetic rapture. It's called the like Bhairavi Mudra, to be aware of everything at once, inner and outer, such that there's no distinction between inner and outer. Eyes are open, you know, like the whole, like Bhairava's eyes are wide open. So you could wander, not just Sangsara, but arguably all 118 Bhuvanas. You could wander all the Lokas and that feeling of Chamatkara won't change. You know, I, I maybe implied this earlier, but the idea is once you recognize your Shiva in every cognition, no matter what Loka you're in and what like quality of cognition you're having, subtle or gross, you still have this wonderment, this Chamatkara, this like sense of, ah, you know, maybe, maybe there's this feeling that even Shiva doesn't know his full potential. He even doesn't know how much uh, infinitude he has. So he just wanders about, it, delighted in the state of aesthetic rapture with each and every single cognition in each and every single loka. Finally, is Pratyabhikya higher than dwelling with God? Um, I don't know. Utpala seems to give me a Ramakrishna kind of vibe when he says like, no, no, no. I just want to drink the nectar of thy devotion and dance in the cremation ground with the nine ghosts. Abhinava Gupta is like, Shank I know you would disagree, Maharaj, that Shankara authored Saundarya Lahari and all of those things. But uh, Abhinava Gupta himself, uh, we know authored like Devi Stotra, Tavachaka, Chanana, Sutirambike, Sakala Shabada Maikilate, Kekte, Tanu, Nikila Murti, Shume, Babadanayo, Manasija, Subahish, Prasarasucha. He's so devotional, you know? So, insofar as these jnanis are ostensibly devotional, we can see that maybe dwelling with God is a feeling state that they sought out, that they cultivated, that they wrote about, even as Jiva and Muktas. So, okay, I think that's just, I'll throw that all out there. Let's maybe have a uh, go back to Swami Medanandaji. Om Namah yeah, Thank you so much. This, I'm amazed at how much you covered in such a small amount of time, short amount of time. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I want to open it up to others. So I want to hear from them, but I, I just want to do, um, mention a couple things. Like for instance, um, the Avatara issue. So I, I'm surprised that, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that Kashmir Shaiva just don't accept Avatara in the traditional sense. Forget about Vaishnavism, but just, you know, the idea that God can incarnate as a human being, you're either saying it's everybody's an incarnate. And what's interesting is that in our tradition, Swami Vivekananda, the young Naren, held that position. He said that everybody's an Avatara. And he would say it in front of Sri Ramakrishna. And then Sri Ramakrishna said, no, I don't mean it in that sense. I mean it in the sense that there are certain human beings who have a special manifestation of God. They are a maximal manifestation of God. They are avatars. So it does seem to be to be a difference, maybe, between Kashmir Shaivism, if I understand you correctly. Okay, that's one thing. Um, another thing is, 
this Jeevan Mukti versus Vijay Mukti. I mean, this, this, Clara Hedling's article, is, I, I really recommend that you look at it. And I'm curious what you think of the whole article. But if you read it, it's in this book I, I mentioned. Sorry, it's uh, my screen is blurred, but it's called the Bloomsbury Research Handbook of Vedanta, and it's chapter 10 by Clara Hedling. And so she, what she said for a lot of the paper, she's saying that there are all these reasons why Kashmiri Shaivism fully accepts Jeevan Mukti. So all the things that you're saying, quoting all those things. And then she says, but there's there are elements in Kashmiri Shaivite philosophy which seem at least prima facie to stand in tension with that kind of elevation of Jivan Mukti to such a high status. And for instance, she mentions the Shaktipata scheme, where the highest re reception of, of grace just entails dissolution of the physical body. And so my question then is, doesn't that imply that Videh Mukti is in some sense superior to Jivan Mukti? So that, that, that's right. what I'd like a little bit of clarification about. And then finally, regarding universal salvation, um, so that's very interesting that you're basically saying that you don't think that Kashmir Shaivism accepts universal salvation. That's very useful to me. I, I didn't know that. And uh, But you said that the reason or one of the reasons is because we are already liberated. But I think Sri Ramakrishna holds exactly the same view. We're all already liberated in a certain sense. Even he says in many places, he quotes Ashtavakar Samhita, which he kept with him, right? He had a hard copy of the book and he, he, right? Okay. he would say that, but even so, the, the problem is we, bound souls. I like what you're saying that Shiva likes to dwell. He, he, he relatives dwelling in, or not dwelling, but like being bound souls, right? I mean, manifesting as bound souls. That's his pleasure, but the problem again, we get come to come to the gospel, right? Trump is talking in the same way, saying that Kali, this is all Kali's play, good and bad, and then and then somebody says, but but God plays our death. And I ask the same question to you, to Kashmir Shaiva. Shiva might be having a good time, but what about us? The poor souls who are, you know, are my kid died, or you know, um, I did terribly on an exam, or I got hit by a truck, or you know. I'm not Shiva. That's the whole problem, right? So I'm 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 in deep suffering because I'm not aware of myself as Shiva, um, and it's, it's from that standpoint that I think that Sri Ramakrishna's doctrine of universal salvation provides such a kind of balm to human beings, right? The idea is that no matter how much you're suffering in this finite existence, right, because you don't know you're liberated, right? Even so, I, I can guarantee you that eventually you will attain the state of liberation as well. Do you see what I mean? Like in th from that standpoint, I think that Trump is offering a kind of solace that maybe Kashmir Trumpism doesn't, but I, I'd like to hear more from you about that. But I think we, we should try to open it up to others as well. Exactly. I think I'll just make two observations and then let's open yeah. the floor because I think this is a good question. And it, it illustrates something very important about Kashmir Shaivism. And that's the difference between descriptive and prescriptive philosophy. Mm -hmm. Even in the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, you know, the way they use the optative there uh, makes you think like, is this practice descriptive or prescriptive? Are they saying this is what will happen to me or is it saying what I should do? Rajit, Vishet, you know, like it's very interesting. They blur the line between descriptive. And, so when we talk about uh, the Anupaya and maybe the nine types of Shaktipata, they're all nine grades. So I know some of you, you know, you've been coming to these classes, you know, all these different nines. They're just varying degrees of spirituality and worldliness. So the first type of Shaktipata is, as Swamiji pointed out, instant death, instant KO. You go into Nirvikalpa Samadhi, body drops away like Lee. The second type of Shaktipata is when you are fully liberated from coming into contact with the Guru, but you still need to practice to stabilize that liberation. Which arguably Swami Brahmananda says, you know, when they ask him, why do you practice so much? And then Sri Ramakrishna give you everything. And he says, I wanted to make it my own. You know, and Shivananda Maharaj says the same thing. So the idea like this is second 
order Shaktipata. The third order Shaktipata is when you get such a high dose of spirituality, but you're not yet liberated, but you become a renunciate. Like there's no possibility of you playing any other game in life, but being spiritual. The fourth type and onwards is varying degrees of worldliness. So in the fourth type of Shaktipat, I want God, but I also want worldly enjoyments. I haven't finished with the world yet. Now this is descriptive. It's not a value judgment. It's not actually saying the first is the best. I don't think. I think what Abhinava is trying to do in chapter three of his Tantra Loka is just tell it like it is. He's just trying to tell you what can happen and list it in terms of varying degrees of spirituality, rather transcendence to imminence. You know, so obviously the first Anupaya is the most transcendental, the first kind of Shaktipata is the most transcendental. But, but in varying degrees, varying degrees of spirituality, doesn't that already imply a value judgment? Or no, you don't think it does? It shouldn't, it shouldn't actually, because we shouldn't see worldliness as not like good. That's the thing. That's why I think um, there's like Ram Kanta. He argues that a Tantra is that which teaches liberation or that which teaches both yoga and bhoga, but not just that which teaches bhoga. So in the texts that teach both yoga and bhoga, bhoga is not to be seen in like an antithetical way to spirituality. So it wouldn't be a value judgment to say I got a fourth level Shaktipata or a sixth level Shaktipata. That's not worse than a second level Shaktipata. It's just different. And the reason it's not worse is because that's what Shiva wanted to do in this incarnation. You see what I mean? It's like, it's, it's Shiva's play. So if, he, if Shiva wants to play level nine uh, Shaktipata, who are we to say that that's worse than Shiva's game at level one? You know? That's why I don't think there's actually a fetishization of spirituality and demeaning of the world. But I think secondly, um, about this universalist experience, yeah, you're right. It is a bomb to say that we're all eat. Some maybe in the evening, others in the morning. Um, but here the whole problem, and in that conversation, it's play for her, it's death for me. Doesn't Sri Ramakrishna then later go on to say, but who are you? Yeah, that's right. You know, so I think that's the whole thing. It's like Kashmir Shaivism is trying to, and, and actually Swami Sarvapiranda said something interesting about this. He actually said that Kashmir Shaivism is non-duality, but not in the sense of Advaita Vedanta, because the Advaita Vedanta non-duality is about me. I am Brahman. Whereas Shami Sarvapiranda actually said that Kashmir Shaivism is more about the non-duality of Shiva. <laughs> so we're more interested in Shiva's non-duality. Okay, ultimately Shiva is me. But we're more interested in Shiva's non-dual nature. So I thought about that, and Shiva is me, you know. So it's still me. Yeah, it's I, just don't, that. I don't. I, sometimes he does these categorizes, which I don't agree with. But in this case, I, what I would say is it's very much centered on the I. But the whole point of Pratha begins that you recognize who you are. You're Shiva. Isn't that the point of Yes, yes yeah. and I should recognize that even in suffering, then my suffering will be alangrasa, totally devoured, and it will become enlivenment. So if in the midst of my suffering, I'm Shiva, I shouldn't need a healing bomb for that suffering to go away. Rather, yeah, the healing... Yeah, but that's oh. a big if, right? Isn't, that's the problem. Most people are not yeah. at the stage where they can recognize Shiva's play in their suffering, right? That's that's the wide suffering. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, I just, you know, I'm trying to sort of feel for the common person rather than people who are already attaining sort of higher spiritual states. Um, and, and I think Sri Ramakrishna's doctrine reassures them in a way that maybe... Um, those who don't accept universal salvation don't. Right, right. Oh, you know, by I the mean, way, you there... know, the way that when 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 a householder would come to Sri Ramakrishna weeping and saying, "My my child has just died," Sri Ramakrishna would cry with them, you know. Yeah. And but but at the same time, he would assure them and say that even you know, don't worry, your kid has not actually died. I'm Kashmirishism obviously has, accepts the same thing, but the point is, even you know, that suffering itself, he can he can reassure them that no matter how much you're suffering, it's all finite. 
and compared to the infinite bliss you are going to experience, that you're guaranteed to experience, if not in this life, then in the future life, this, this suffering pales in comparison. Mm-hmm. And that has this hint of progressive path salvation, like eventually, yeah. you know, and I think yeah. Kashmir Shaivism is very averse to any kind of progressive sort of language. They prefer like that di- more direct language. Like I don't, I won't be liberated because I've always been. Yeah. Always- no, but again, but again, as I said, I don't, Sharanka also says we're already liberated. Right. But, do you see what I mean? So it's not that, but the idea is, He's thinking from our finite standpoint, right? Yes. Even Advaita Vedanta says, you know, you're not, I mean, you are, you are, you are ignorant of Brahman through certain spiritual practices and jnana yoga and meeting the right guru and purifying the mind. Only then do you realize that you were liberated all along. But I think Sharanga yes. said the same thing, except that, so I don't think we, they actually differ on that point, but I, but I think that it is an important difference then if Kashmir Shaivism does not accept universal salvation, that's quite interesting to me. But do they believe in hell, for instance? Uh, you didn't talk about that, but I wonder... And yeah. eternal health, for instance? Yeah, it's a good Madhva question does. about eternal. Yeah, like Madhva says, there are some souls who are called um, Tamo Yogyas who are, who are destined for an eternal health. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very dark doctrine, <laughs> it, like predestination in Calvin or something. But what, what does Kashmir Shaiva do? Yeah, you know, one thing I get the impression about Kashmir Shaiva non-duality is that, and I, I'm surprised we didn't actually get to cover this today, maybe a different conversation, but the reality of the world, the ontological status of the world, you know, I, I, I didn't really address that as much as I could. Yeah. But my feeling Let's do a separate talk. I feel that, like there's so much more to talk about, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's, let's like just have the ontological state of the world because I, I was really excited to have a debate about that because I do want to mm. take the position of Mithyavada because I think that is there in Kashmir Shaivism. All the attitudes are available to us in Kashmir Shaivism. My feeling um, is that you see, there's no like static world. I think Kashmir Shams will be very resistant to an eternal hell or an eternal heaven just because the spanda, you know, this idea like awareness has a dynamic property whereby it manifests itself, but in such a fluid, variegated way. So we get this phrase, the shiki paksha chitra rupair uh, mandala, the, the mandala of the various colored peacock feather, shiki paksha. You know, this idea is like, like right now I'm experiencing a nested sort of experience. It's a body, it's an energy body, it's a mind, but this whole world too is various pulsations and oscillations of awareness and nothing is static. There's, there's no like kind of quartz kind of structure, arguably, you know, nothing has crystallized into quartz. I think that's another difference. You know, Sri Ramakrishna has, has Nitya kind of lokas, but the feeling that we get here is that the Spanda is too dynamic to be Nitya. And in the image of Makali, she doesn't stop. You know, her feet are always moving. She's always walking. It's always dynamic. So if anything comes into being, it must go out of being the moment awareness kind of withdraws it. You know, so it's Unmesha Nimesha, I think. Once you get into the language of like um, Spanda and you get Unmesha, the blossoming, and you know, the language here is, if I have an Unmesha of transcendence, I must have concurrently a Nimesha of um, imminence. So my sense faculties must go for me to have a meditative absorption and vice versa. If I feel myself to be a deha, then my, my, there's a nimesha in my meditation, but they have to be kind of bouncing back. So I don't think there could be this ossification or reification of any one loka. I, at least that's not my feeling. There's okay. too, it, maybe this is more anecdotal, but mm. it's, it's, more, it's more dynamic than that. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think we should take, take questions. What do you think from other people? Yeah, let's open the floor, everyone. So <laughs> good. So maybe we can use a raised hand function and uh, you can address your questions to Swamiji. So raised hand function and we'll call upon you, you know, and we'll call upon you in turn. And there are a bunch of questions in the chat box. So whatever you want to do with. 
Do you want me to, anybody, any questions that we can maybe unmute and, and have you speak? Or do you want me to just like read some off of, of the chat box? Maybe I'll call upon you. So I see here that, ah, there we go. So yes, Bree, please. Let me just remove these spotlights here. Hold on. Okay, go for it. Bree? <laughs> Hi, everyone. Uh, well, now I, I'm not really for sure what I'm going to remember everything that I wrote in the chat. Um, but uh, you, you both of you are hitting on some things that um, it's been a question that's been kind of spinning around in my mind, taking like just uh, bits and pieces from all of the different texts that I'm reading. Um, and I, I so to me, what it's sounding like is maybe I'm on like the right track with this way of thinking, but also some of what I'm thinking may be like a little bit far out of an idea, maybe a little bit of conjecture. So I definitely would like to know what you think about that. Maybe reel me back in. But um, when I started to the first time I started to, you know, read something about Tantra, um, the thing that got me was like the tantric view of, of the 30, 36 tuplas. It's like with a W, right? Okay. Um, and of course, like the seven perceiver there, you basically like verse uh, seven of the Pratnya Vigna, the riddle, you know, it just got me and it just it blew my mind wide open. And, and so I started looking at that and I was just amazed. Like this is, this is the cosmological breakdown of how, how God as the macrocosm, like divides itself into us as a human being, even down to our most biological functions. And when you look at how, you know, it's like, basically that's just the 24 tatwas. It's just that I, uh, Tantra just takes it a little bit further in giving it God's actual um, name and why we can't remember him or whatever. It seems to me, one, I'm going to say that like, if, my sense of tasting is essentially God itself. Like what I taste is God. It's God tasting and the act of tasting is God and the ability to taste period is God. Right. So that says like, if I'm, if I'm drinking this tea with some reverence, I'm actually, I'm honoring God. And you've, you've made some, some points like that in, in what you've said, but it also seems to me like what, um, what the Swami is talking about in his opinion of what Ramakrishna is saying is he's agreeing with the fact that those might like that Ramakrishna would probably agree with that. So where, why do we need renunciation in things like advice? And also I'm kind of thinking, I want to think that um, even the 24 Tatwas in Sankhya philosophy is the same because I have, I, for some reason, I'm just railing against this fact that there's Purusha and there's Prakriti and they are different and you renounce these things and, and all of that when Prakriti is essentially also a part of Purusha. Um, so am I off base on that thinking? And also like, I'm, and then I'm also, I want to state that I'm not coming at this like, well, if I'm just God and my taste is God or whatever, then I should be able to taste whatever I want. Why should I renounce anything? I'm not coming at that from a standpoint because that's, you know, solipsistic and it's ego driven and stuff like that. And I'm not going to realize God, I'm just going to be the person I was before I read that book. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that you raised, I mean, one of the questions I asked, which you didn't cover, and I don't blame you for not covering it, Nishant, because you, you have limited time, but was about you know, Sri Ramakrishna, one of the keynotes of his teachings is renunciation of lust and greed. And it, it does seem like in Kashmir Shaivism, you don't get that kind of insistence. And I'm wondering whether you see that as a as a significant difference or really a difference in emphasis or what, what's your take on this? 
Nishant. Yeah, importantly, I think pronunciation is important to Kashmir Shaivas. It's just that they 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 value a gradual type of household pronunciation. So you look at Swami Lakshmanju. He's a great example. He was a brahmachari from the very beginning. You know, so they actually call him Brahmachari Lakshmanju. Now, remember, Swami Lakshmanju is perhaps the last living relevant Kashmiri Shaiva master. Insofar mm. as he's like the embodiment of this tradition, the fact that he is a Brahmachari, that he's a Swami, should tell you that this tradition, unlike, I mean, like all the other Indian spiritual traditions, is also very pro-renunciation. So then what, so can I ask again that question about Vamachara? So, you know, Shrampus's take on Vamachara. Yes. What, what is the Kashmiri Shaiva take on Vamachara? Yeah, I think entering through the back door, it's interesting because Sri Ramakrishna, I think, is more like accepting of the Vamachara Kartabhaja stuff because to us, it would be like, it's a matter of gradual uh, learning. You know, someone who maybe is not ready for enunciation should have a, you know, more world-affirming path. And then once they taste a sweeter taste, they've walked a bit to the, e- the west, the east will fall away. So we like Vamachara because of Adhikara. There are certain people for whom that's just, you know, that's the only way they're going to interact with spirituality. You know, it's like there's a middle class. There are those who are worldly, samsarins. There are those who are spiritual, sadhus like yourself. And then there are householders who are not samsarins. They do want to be spiritual, but they're not yet ready to be sadhus. So in between class is we're trying to appeal to them. We say, you know, whether you're fourth through ninth grade Shaktipata, you know, drink your wine, have your sex, whatever. But don't forget to think of God. The most important thing is to think of God. So many tantras glorify women, maybe as a concession, as I think Swami Saradanandaji also argues, because it's like, look, we can't, we can't free you from your lust. So we just, we have to concede. And that's my feeling. We're actually making a concession to the worldly. And we're saying, you can have your wine, just make sure you pray. We pray mm-hmm. that you will taste the sweeter taste of bhakti. And then, you know, you'll, all these things will fall away. And then slowly, 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 you're ready for mm-hmm. Shiva's highest revelation, which sounds like Ajatavada and the Vijnana Bhairava. So I think that's what we want. We want renunciation. We're just permissive mm-hmm. insofar as the gradual approach to that. I see. Very interesting. Thanks. Uh, should we take another question from... Yes, Amalji. Um, my question is going to be for Swami. Thank you so much for coming and, you know, um, can actually ask you a question, Swami. Um, I heard you talk about um, jnana in schools other than Advaita. And this, um, like, maybe in... Um, like qualify non-dualism that they, oh, I see. they you're talking also... about a different lecture you're talking about a different lecture on youtube yes. is that what you mean yeah okay yes. please go ahead yeah yeah um i think it was at tribuco maybe yeah um you uh vedanta for dummy and i i talked a lot about yeah. non-advaitic schools of vedanta yeah yeah so that's like a really um like thrilling idea to me that uh you can look uh that other schools would have jnana as well mm-hmm. and um also, like in Advaita, I guess I'd, I I wanted to just ask, um, what are some other, like, because we normally have a very heavy Advaita leaning in, like, um, our Ramakrishna order lectures. And um, what are some, like, non-traditional ways of thinking about jnana and bhakti that we don't normally talk about? Like, mm-hmm. um, in maybe like bhakti in advaita but not in just the like normal way we talk about it but um maybe different ways of looking at jnana and bhakti that aren't kind of the traditional ways we talk about it 
Yeah. So, I mean, what I talked about in that lecture was jnana yoga, actually. So the, the, the sadhana of, of the, of, of based on knowledge, right. Which, which should culminate in knowledge of, of Brahman, the highest reality. And I pointed out that in Ramanuja's bhakti school, jnana yoga is not the same as what Shankara means by jnana yoga. Um, so that's one thing regarding bhakti yoga. There's all this dispute about which of the four yogas is the highest. And according to bhakti school, bhakti is the highest, right? And, and Shankara just reverses that and says that, no, bhakti is a preparatory discipline to help you concentrate and purify the mind. And ultimately the highest discipline is jnana yoga. And so that's another thing is like, what is, what is, the, what is the status of bhakti relative to the other yogas? I think that differs drastically in, across different schools. And in some schools, it's even high, bhakti is even higher than mukti, than liberation. Because it's considered supreme love of God is considered to be a much higher state than just being liberated from rebirth. And, and according to Vaishnavism, for instance, liberation from rebirth is a kind of just a kind of like a a minor side effect of having supreme love of God, which is the real coveted highest goal. That's another example. But I mean, we, yeah. I I guess my question comes from a kind of uh, like a vigyana, vigyana perspective that like we may reach. Gyan, like um realization through jnana and then like when you come down um like devotion is there yeah you know? okay one thing is one thing oh i mean this is another thing i wanted to say is that see the word jnana just means knowledge okay and the term is used constantly in the vedantic scriptures in bhagavad gita and in in the upanishads and the thing is every single school of vedanta accepts the highest goal of jnana because all that means is knowledge of Brahman, which is the highest reality. Where they differ is, what is the nature of Brahman that you have knowledge of? And so Ramanuja will say that Brahman is personal. It's the personal God Vishnu, not Ayana. Shankara will say that same Brahman, that's not, that, that's not the highest Brahman. The highest Brahman is Nirguna Brahman. It's non-dual pure consciousness. But they all agree that the goal is jnana. So I, I think it's a common misconception that jnana is only emphasized in, in Advaita Vedanta. It's emphasized in every school of Vedanta as the highest goal. But what you attain knowledge of is, is where they differ on, right? So that's, that's an important point, I think. Thank you. I see Jamie here. Yes, Jamie G. Jamie? Sorry, give me one. There you go. Yes. I think you're muted again, dear. Yes, hi. <laughs> um, thank you for um, being here, um, Stormyji. I watched your um, lecture from October um, about this topic um, just this afternoon. Um, Rewatched it, actually. Um, so I just uh, wanted to say thank you for coming. Thank you for giving us this lecture and for. Um, your insights on this. Sorry, I'm just trying to get my screen so I can see everybody. There we go. Um, and I also wanted to say thank you, Nish, for your wonderful expertise in crafting all these um, ideas and arguments and serving them to us in such an attainable and um, um, understandable way. Um, it's clear that you both really know your stuff. <laughs> so thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. Um, I really don't have um, uh, a whole lot to add or ask because the question that I was going to ask, um, Swamiji already asked and was answered about um, 
well, I can't remember what it was even now. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> my brain's not working today. Jess, thank you for asking. Um, I am getting over my COVID, but it's still clearly affecting my brain a little bit. <laughs> it's no problem. Maybe, well, can I ask, can I um, ask again the question about the six chakras? What do you think about Sharampish's interpretation of the chakras in, in relation to Kashmir Shaivism? Yeah, and the issue of whether there's a hierarchy with kind of Nirvigal Samadhi being some yes. sense higher than realization of the personal God. What do you think about all that? Yeah, I was excited because we have five chakras, broadly speaking, in the Kaula Trika school, right? Yeah. But in Vigdhyana Bhairava, there are 12. And mm. interestingly, these 12 chakras, um, it seems like there's a centrality in the heart. You know, because you get the first four chakras like navel down into Janmagra, then the mm. other four up here. So there's, if you look at the map of the chakras, there's a centrality, just geometrically speaking, in the heart. I see. It's not actually head being the highest, not, not in that sense. I mean, just geometrically, the heart seems to be like there, but but the goal is the head. So almost the all... The goal is the head. Not even the head. There's a thing, it's called uh, Traya Mushti, or like uh, Dvada Shaka. So 12, 12 fingers at the end of 12, Dvada Shaka. So you're, you're talking thousand petal lotus though, right? That's no, the goal? that's the thing. We don't actually have that phrase, actually. We it, it Really the oh, phrase. Sahasrara is not there. Vyapini or Dvada Shanta. Vyapini, of course, being the highest realization is a state of all pervasiveness. So my the, the point here, it's very much like Bhuta Shuddhi in the puja. The point is to take Kundalini Shakti, which by the way, they don't even call it that in the Vijnana. That, uh, Shema Raja will call it that, but Kundalini, not, it's anachronistic. Some energy is there. It's Amulat Kiranabhasaha. Some ray of light will come from the bottom of the chakras. There are mantras that are actually the Sanskrit vowels attributed. So they're all like 16 vowels, but you drop r, r, l, l, you drop those. You have then 12 vowels. You go up this kind of vowel system with the highest state being this Vyapini. So the goal is the crown of the head. And then there is what happens that Sri Ramakrishna described as kind of like coming down and flowing through. So it's almost like once you reach this state, which is much mm -hmm. higher, there's something called the Brahma Randra here, which maybe corresponds to thousand petal lotus. Once you mm -hmm. come out through the Brahma Randra, which is often speak, spoken of in terms of ejaculation, like Visha, you come out here, you, there's a Shakti, a midway point, and then there's this Vyapini. Once you hit the Vyapini, that's technically Sahaja Samadhi. You feel yourself to be everything. You, you become okay. embodied. So this yeah. is helpful, but so let me bring it back to Sri Ramakrishna a little bit, because it seems like when Sri Ramakrishna describes the thousand petal lotus, because he does talk about the Sahasrara, he, he aligns it with Nirvigalta Samadhi, which is tantamount to knowledge of your true nature as non-dual pure consciousness. He would liken it to a salt doll going to measure the depth of the ocean. Yes. The moment it set foot in the ocean, it, it melted in the ocean. So now I, I wonder whether this ideal is not quite the same thing as, as Advaitic, classical Advaitic Nirvikalpa Samadhi, or am I mistaken in thinking that? That maybe it's recognition of yourself as Shiva, which is all pervasive, something like that. I mean, that's almost like the Vigyani's realization rather than the, yeah. Advai, the classical Advaitagyanis, what do you think? I mean, what's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe my feeling is that they had a copy of the Shiva Sangita lying around because you know they had a reading of it one day. Sri Ramakrishna says the Shiva Sangita is going to be read now. That has a six. Oh, not just that, by the way, I don't know if you know, but um, he had a book with him, a hard copy of a book by Bipin Bihari Goshal called Mukti Otaha Shadon in Bangla. Do you know about this? It's very interesting, and he would have it read out to him. And it's a compilation of a huge number of spiritual texts in the in India, including Mahanirvana Tantra, and I think Shiva Samhita is in there. So he was actually wow. aware of these texts because he had he was Shruti Dhara, so he remembered everything right. So 
So I just want to mention that because I think he actually was, a, I'm almost certain that Bipin Bili Gosha, that compilation has Shiva Samhita excerpts in there. That's my feeling because when Sri Ramakrishna is talking about the chakras, my feeling is that there's a Shiva Shangita influence there insofar oh. as you're talking about six chakras because the yogis talk about six chakras. Then he right. says, this is the same as the seven planes. So he's comparing you yeah. know, the seven planes of Vedanta. Saptabhumi. Vedic Saptabhumi. Yeah. Yeah, Saptabhumi to this uh, uh, yeah. Shat Chakra yeah. model. So okay. that's why I'm thinking what he's doing is he's basing his his understanding of the Shiva Sangita, and mm. then there the Shiva Sangita has the kind of final state in the brain itself, something like that. Mm. Um, but he, you're right, his languaging sounds a lot like Vyapini more than you know Nirvikalpa Samadhi. I think you're spot on there. That's my feeling too. Yeah. The, okay. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Um, are there written questions we should look at? I mean, in the chat box. Yes. Does anybody want to read out their questions? I know Brock is still here and Brock had asked a question pretty earlier on. He asked, I don't understand why is it that something can't both possess equal claim to having truth and higher truth? Why can't something hold the validity of truth yet lack the completeness of absolute truth? Is an aspect of truth not still truth? Yeah, I think this is a great question. Actually, this is something I want to talk about. I mean, and since you raised it, I think I'll say. So in my scholarly work, I distinguish when I talk about pluralism, right? The, the idea that you're giving equal validity to different paths. I distinguish two ways that you can cash out being pluralistic. One is doctrinal pluralism and the other is what I call salvific pluralism, okay? So I think it's perfectly plausible and in fact, probably a necessity to claim that your own comprehensive philosophy is in some sense broader than the you know other other philosophies which are sort of aspects of it. That I don't have any issue with. I think Sri Ramakrishna does the same thing. Vigyana Vedanta itself is a kind of super philosophy or a meta philosophy that encompasses as aspects. Shankara's Advaita because it accepts Nirguna Brahman, it accepts Ramana's Vishnu, it accepts Krishna, uh, Christians, uh, you know, Christ and uh, Muslims Allah, right? It's because Vigyana Vedanta is a more comprehensive philosophy that is able to account for the equal value of other traditions. But the other thing is what I want to emphasize, which is I believe that Sri Ramakrishna was a salvific pluralist, which means that he granted equal salvific value to multiple religious paths, that they're equally capable of taking us to the goal of salvation. And here, I, my theory with regard to Kashmir Shaivism is, are they also salvifically pluralistic in the sense that do they think that non-Kashmiri Shaivite paths can take us to the highest goal or not. So, you know, interestingly, this is the frustrating frustrating thing about Kashmiri Shaivism because earlier, even with regards to renunciation, the question is, if a person doesn't renounce and continues to be a worldling, technically they're still free, right? So similarly, the what does it mean to solve? There's no like real problem arguably to solve. So if someone is a Charvaka, that technically that's what they want that's what shiva wanted to do so technically for the charvaka that's enough the, the, but yeah i know but yeah but again i mean I, I you said this several times but i guess i still get stuck there because you're right i mean even in trankus's philosophy we're already we're already god i mean there's nothing but god right so yes. it's a kind of radical divine advaita but the problem is we don't know that yes yes so, so there's a difference between already being liberated and, but still not knowing that we're already liberated right so the problem is that we don't know that we're already shiva that we're already liberated Yes. And, and arguably, it's Shiva knows that he's Shiva. I don't, right? Nish doesn't know that he's Shiva. That's right. Shiva knows that he's Shiva. So, my, yeah, but, but, so I feel bad for Nish, not for Shiva. Yes, but, but, so exactly. That, <laughs> the, the question is, if I am a Shiva, I should not feel bad for Nish because, and this is the Bhakta kind of attitude that's coming, I have to surrender to the will of Lord Shiva. 
And if I do that, actually, then I will progress through the parts, maybe. But that's not the point. The point is just to recognize that I'm Shiva, no matter what. So there's a kind of, in the Sangati of Tad Bhumika Sarva Darshana Sitayaha, Shemaraja actually says, it doesn't matter what school of philosophy you belong to, because let's say you're a Charvaka, right? In your mind, you say, okay, hedonism is the ultimate goal in life. There's, the, the, there's no soul outside of the body. You, once you say that, now what you have is a cognition, that cognition is still living inside the awareness that is Shiva, Bodha. So whatever cognition I have corresponding to whatever school I might belong to, the fact remains that there's an awareness in which that cognition vibrates. No, I, I get it, but I still, I'm surely Kashmir Shaivism is a soteriologically oriented philosophy that takes Pratyabhigyan to be the highest goal, at the very least. I mean, you would at least agree with that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So that, yeah. if that's true, Charvakas are very far, far from the goal of Pratyabhigyan <laughs> in in the, in the relevant sense, right? Yeah, Surely. that's why when you said, you know, do we grant the the the? Do they all reach the goal? I was shaking my head at first because it's like, no, yeah, we we're broader. We say okay, broader. So that's why hierarchically we're better. But you're right. I don't. I think insofar as Pratyabhigyan is the goal, or you know, becoming not just a Vijnana Kala, but going beyond is the goal. Yeah, there are higher mystical experiences beyond what the other schools give, and right. if you follow them, you won't get those mystical experiences. Right. So I do that, think that Kashmir Shaivites stopped short of pluralism in the from a from a salvific standpoint. I mean, they're going I to say that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks. That that helps. Uh, should we look at other questions written down on the chat yes. box? Maybe we can take Ryan while I look for the next question. So Ryan, do you want to go while I look for the next written question? Sure. Thank you, Nish. And thank you, Swami. Uh, question for the Swami. And it's so nice to be back here with the group. Um, as far uh, from the standpoint of making a practical difference in the lives of a layperson or a householder, what do you think the most important distinction is from Ramakrishna's Vedanta versus Shankaracharya's Vedanta? Oh, I mean, I think uh, that's a great question. I mean, I would say that the one of the main differences is because I, I was a classical Advaita Vedantin for a while, for a few years before I converted. I had this conversion experience, not a conversion experience, but in any case, I converted to Vigyana Vedanta. But I felt constrained because. Classical Advaita says that there's only one highest path. There's only one direct path to liberation, which is Jnana Yoga. And everything else is okay except lower. And what happens is when you switch to Vigyana Vedanta, you're empowered to practice any of the four yogas without feeling like you're a second-class citizen or spiritually stupid if you're practicing Bhakti or Karma Yoga, for instance. I mean, it's... it's and, and I find myself, you know, it, it just becomes a more dynamic spiritual practice, right? I mean, because you're able to practice yoga at the same time. That's another thing which Shankara didn't accept. He rejected jnana karma samuchaya, which means that you practice jnana yoga and karma yoga at the same time. He says, that's a no-no. It's not possible. They're meant for different grades of spiritual aspirin. But no, the same person from the standpoint of Vigyana Vedanta can practice jnana yoga and bhakti yoga and karma yoga and raja yoga and combine them. So I, I think that's a very practical difference that, that really catches out a, 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 in, in very concrete ways in day-to-day -day life. Thank you. All right. And Swamiji, a lot of the other questions, I think we've covered them already insofar as they're about renunciation. Um, okay. And I think Brock is still asking about hierarchicalism, you know, so maybe mm -hmm. the question here is, can you be hierarchical? Uh, can you can you be pluralistic without being relativistic? You know, is there? A kind yeah, of no, I think that's another very important question. And, and as I said, so the trick is, 
You can, but you have to bite a certain bullet. That bullet is doctrinal inclusivism in the sense that we were talking about five minutes ago, which is that you can only avoid relativism, which is the position that, you know, there's no ultimate truth and there's no objective reality. And therefore all paths are equally fine, right? But no, I think Sharanka's position is not, it's anti-relativistic in the sense that there is truth. What is the truth? God. And there are many equally valid paths to realizing God, but he's able to say that because he has a concrete understanding of the nature of God as impersonal, personal, and beyond both personality and impersonality, right? So he's taking a strong stand there. And it's because he does that, that he's able to secure salvific pluralism. Um, does that answer the question? I mean, so, so that is, he has to adopt this more comprehensive meta philosophy, which I call Vigyana Vinanta, which is just, which encompasses other philosophies as kind of aspects of it. Right, so that's the bullet that I'm saying, saying that Trump has to bite, right? Because in some sense, that's inclusivism, but it's inclusivism from the doctrinal standpoint. In order to ground a rigorous salvific pluralism in a way that avoids relativism. So that, that's how I see Trump's position. Right, and it's interesting because he often says that what God is cannot be described, it's form, yeah. formless, and many. So he's relativistic insofar as like the absolute truth could be anything. So the absolute, could you say the absolute the way we can conceive of the absolute is infinite, but the ways to get there thereby have to be infinite. Um, but there is an absolute truth. The absolute truth is God, but God itself cannot be said to be only with form, only formless. There's so many other ways to experience God. Yeah, but again, I, I still don't think that the right way to put characterize that view is as relativistic because relativism is a radical postmodern position which denies, as far as I'm aware, any objective truth. Yeah, and I don't think Krishna would would deny objective truth. I think that when he's right, he says that you can never put a limit to God. You can never iti in Sanskrit is a kind of end quotation mark. So you can't say God is just this but not that. But that's not relativism. Yeah, um, that's saying that God is illimitable, right? I mean, that's the way I see it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And you know, interestingly, at the end of many Kashmir Shaiva texts, you get this kind of iti shivam vibe. Mm -hmm. They often say mm -hmm. iti shivam. Like, uh, may this be a blessing, this is Shiva. Or all this is mm. Shiva's play. So right. there is maybe, I will concede here, a kind of iti vibe going on. You know? <laughs> well, no, because... I mean, what's interesting is when you're saying Shiva as being kind of the highest form, did you say that other forms are sort of, they're lower or, or in some sense manifestations of Shiva, partial manifestations well, of Shiva? What would be the language you're using? I mean, let me, let me read it. Let, let me read you the verse. Okay. Yeah? yeah. So that you can yeah. get the exact Sanskrit here. So this is verse 19 of the Charvana Bidhana Stotra. So this is uh, Utpala Deva. Dhyā tamātra mupatishtata eva tvadva purvarada bhakti dānānām. It's quite long. But you know, you can see what he's trying to do is he's trying to like hear apya chintyam akilad bhuta chinta. My text is quite small. Kartritam prati chate vijayante. Do you kind of get that vibe, right? Like, well, what, what would Shiva say about, or what would Kevin Shavit say about Krishna, the form of Krishna, the form of uh, Kali? Just as an example, like any sense of how they would. How they would look upon these forms of God? What would they say? Yeah. 
Okay, let's say from outside Shaivism, he, they, they would say like, you know, the Shaiva devotee, the devotee of Shiva, Utpala would say is the highest. And he even says like, yeah. they're the real devotees. The other cl- classes comprise the Vedantin or the Vaishnavite devotees who are not real devotees of thee. They are your devotees because anyone who is devoted to Vishnu is devoted to Lord Shiva. And who is devoted to Brahma right. is also Lord Shiva. But here right? again, we get inclusivism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a kind yeah. of, yeah. And then also yeah. in the... In fact, Shiva is saying about his own form, the blue guy on the mat. He's saying that's a piece of candy or a goblin story. So he's saying, don't think of Kali as a many-armed woman. Don't think of Shiva as a blue guy on a mat. You know, this Kali is Chitti, the goddess awareness, the feminine singular noun of awareness. So they do not even accept, arguably in the non-dual traditions, the forms of Shaivism. You know, of like mm. Kali and Shiva, they see those as lesser kind mm. of I- I- identity of Shiva, lesser revel- revelations. Yeah, and, and I mean, Maybe. this is what I find striking about Sri Ramakrishna because he, he uses that metaphor of eating sugar versus becoming sugar. For Sri Ramakrishna, it's a matter of temperament and different souls have different inclinations. And some choose to eat sugar, which means they want to dwell in eternal love and communion with the form of the personal God. And others want to be, in Kajmanishadai term, Shiva. Right, and there's no higher and lower there, as far as I can tell. Um, but it seems like in Kashmir Shaivism, the goal really is being Shiva and knowing your Shiva, Pratibhya. Yes, and not dwelling with the personal God in any kind of loka. Right? Yes, because right? even yeah. if you're dwelling, like Ramana Maharshi, I think has this beautiful thing where someone is asking him about Vaikuntha Loka, and he's saying, "Well, what will Vishnu say to me?" And then Ramana says, "Vishnu will tell you to ask yourself, who am I." So it's kind of like that vibe. If you're in a loka, yeah. you're supposed to have pratyabhikya in that loka. Yeah. And that pratyabhikya is, is higher than yeah. being in that loka. This is what Swami Tapasanji, who is a great uh, monk in our order, he's a vice president, and he's one of the few monks who thought outside the Shankara box. And he has this great book called Bhakti Skosa Vedanta. And in the introduction, he has different section headings. One of them is called The Patronizing Attitude of Advaita Vedanta. <laughs> and, and there he says, you know, if you're a self-respecting bhakta, how could you possibly say that you're practicing bhakti uh, because you're an inferior spiritual aspirant and the god you're worshipping is ultimately unreal? You know what I mean? So you need a philosophy that actually supports that bhakti in a robust way. Um, so anyway, I mean, yeah, these, these are these, it's, I, I've learned a lot from this discussion. I really appreciate it. Um, and I, I would love to have a separate session just on the issue of the ontological status of the world, according to... Shram Krishna and Kashmir Shaivism, because I think there are technical issues here, and I would love to actually like talk about text and maybe even some scholarship on this issue to really go deep, because this is something that's been bugging me. And uh, recently, um, uh, uh, uh in, in what he's in India touring, and um, somebody asked him directly in Bangalore somewhere. You, uh, I'm, uh, Swami Medananda in his books is saying that um, this world, according to the Vigyana Vedanta, this world is a real manifestation of God. But you seem to be saying that classical Advaita Vedanta teaches Brahma Vivartavada, the doctrine that this world is an illusory appearance of Brahman. How do you, I mean, what's the connection between these two things? And then what Sarvapranji ends up saying, as far as I could tell, is that um, if, you, if you take my Vigyana Vedanta doctrine that this world is a real manifestation of God, you have to accept something like Parinamavada. And he sees that as disastrous philosophically. He doesn't think that's a logical position. He doesn't think it makes sense for God actually to become this world. And the main reason I think he gives is, is the problem of evil. Because God is supposed to be perfect and this world is imperfect. So how can something perfect become something imperfect and not be tainted by the imperfections of the world? But in any case, I mean, I would love to discuss sort of in more detail sort of... Sri Ramakrishna was um, 
not as detailed as maybe we might like or whatever. And so he just kept saying again and again, Brahman has become the 24 causal principles. But what is the force of that become? And is that a Parinama become? Is that an Abhasa become? Is it a Vivarta become? I don't think it's a Vivarta become, but Savrapanji seems to think that because Parinama Vada is such an unsatisfactory alternative, he, he plumps for Vivarta Vada, even if Ramakrishna does not prima facie seem to be saying that. And even if the Upanishads don't seem to be accepting Vivarta Vada, it's the only logical position um, out there. So, I'd, I, so I would like to know more about the Kashmir Shaivite stance on these issues. Yeah, Maharaj, I was taking notes about all the questions that you were posing. First, I realized, okay, this is going to be a little longer than an hour. But, but <laughs> yeah. then when I, when, I, when I noted Abhasa, I just wrote Abhasa there. As I was going through the list and I got to Abhasa, I was like, okay, not right now. I'm going to yeah. skip that and go to the other questions. Yeah. You're right. All right. Prakasha Vimarsha is a whole, like, because yeah. okay. you have Spanda and you have Prakasha yeah. Vimarsha. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a difference, arguably, between like okay. Spanda. Okay, let's, let's have another session. How about that? Yeah. Let's definitely yeah, right, cool. continue yeah. the ontological reality of the world. That's our yes, part two. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so much. Maybe we can call it a night here. And uh, we want to thank please, you so please, much. Please, please do give a closing chant. Yeah, as well. Yeah, yes. please go ahead. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us. I'll do a closing chant and then we'll call it. Thank I'll stick around though. Yeah, it was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. For, thank for you, Marge. We learned a lot. So let's do a closing chant. Thank you all. Om Tavachakachanana Stutirambike Sakalashabdamai Kilate Tanu Nikilamutishume Bhavadanayo Manasija Subahish Prasara Sucha Itivichintiya Shive Shamita Shive Jagati Jatamayat Navashadidam Stutija Parcha Tanavarjita Nakaluka Chanaka Kalastime Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Panamastu Bye, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, Swami. All right, dear friends, let me turn this fellow off.